about a year ago, I met uh, Dave Gibbons, and there are very few pastors that I really look up to. Um, I guess that makes me arrogant. But um, Dave, I had admired him from a distance, hearing about his ministry as a large church down in Irvine, and uh, the church was doing some really amazing things. And then when we met last summer, we just really hit it off. And since then, he's been a real friend to me, um, as well as a mentor. And a while back, we had talked about maybe swapping pulpits one Sunday because I felt like there's so much that he has to offer to Cornerstone. And we had a different uh, difference in gifts. And, uh, and so right now I'm in Irvine while he's here because I just felt like he'd be a, a real blessing to Cornerstone. And God is using him to do amazing things all across America and even overseas, some of the things that he's done for the poor. Um, but I think you guys are going to love this guy. So if you guys would welcome up my friend Dave Gibbons. is uh, Korean, five foot tall. My dad is American. Uh, he's a blue-eyed white guy from the Midwest. And as you look at me, you can tell Koreans have some pretty strong genes. <laughs> uh, you know, I couldn't wait to be with you. You know how sometimes men, when they're away from their wives, they talk a little bit differently than when they're with them? You know, they'll say some good things in front of them, but then when they're behind the scenes with their buddies, they kind of go off. And pastors do the same thing. But when it came to Francis, and he, when he talked about you with me, he'd have tears in his eyes. He'd have a heart uh, that he'd share with me how much he loved you. And uh, then he talked about the elders here and how much they're like his friends and his buddies. And I said, I bet a lot of pastors in America wish they could have a church like yours. So you don't know how excited I am to be with you today. I pray that the Holy Spirit would fall upon you and that you'd sense his power and strength in your lives. Let me ask the Lord to do something right now. Holy Spirit, make this room electric with your presence. We pray that uh, this wouldn't be an ordinary Sunday because there's people here who need to be healed. There's people here who need to know your favor and how they're your children. So whisper your words of love throughout this, uh, this worship time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, when my wife looked over at me and said, it's time. And what that meant is I had to take her to the hospital. Uh, we're going to have our second child. Our first child was a beautiful you know, baby girl, and the second one, we couldn't wait because it was going to be a boy from our mind's eye. We, my my mother-in-law, who was a very godly Pentecostal woman, she had said, you know, she knew as she looked at my wife that this was going to be a boy. My father, who's also very Pentecostal, he had a dream and said, man, I know this is going to be a boy. Then I had these Asian women who I was affiliated with. They were, you know, they're the kind of old school and they would feel the stomach. And they, they said, you know, yeah, that's a shape like a, a boy. So, man, I was just 100% sure I was going to have a boy. So I went to the hospital and, um, you know, they, I'm not sure if you've seen the labor and delivery rooms lately, but they're pretty nice. It's not like 30 years ago where they're cold, sterile, steel environments. But actually, these environments now are, are kind of luxurious even. It's like they have these lazy boy chairs for the fathers, the television sets right there uh, that you can look at your wife and look at the, the TV set. <laughs> and so 
you know, it was kind of tense, the, you know, the hospital room until my wife got the epidural and then everything was great, you know. As I was kicking back watching Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was, the Mars was blowing up on some Terminator 3 or something, uh, Dr. Smith Wason said, Dave, it's time, would you like to help deliver the baby? I said, of course, you know, just like the first one, right? She goes, oh yeah, but remember, the baby's really slippery. So be careful. Now, when, the, when I pull the baby's head out, I'm going to get the shoulders out a little bit. You take your two index fingers and then lift the baby out. I said, okay, got it. So I went into my old football position like this. <laughs> and she goes, okay, you ready? I said, I'm ready. I took my two index fingers and popped them in the armpits. And I pulled the baby out. And I said, Becca, oh, yes, it's a boy. It's a boy. It's a boy. And Dr. Smith Wason said, no. It's a girl. In America, we call that an umbilical cord. You know, uh, sometimes things aren't quite the way they appear to be. And I found that's true with the spiritual life. Some of the things we hold on to and grab to think that is our worship, that this is the essential part of who we are as worshipers of God, maybe really isn't worship to the Lord. I was thinking if Satan had a strategy, what would be his strategy to get the church off course? I said he would probably build some illusions up, that the most important things are the buildings and the professional staff of a church. Because right now in America, 60 to 80% of our budgets typically go to buildings, not Cornerstone, which is admirable. It's amazing that you give 50% away. But typically in America, 60 to 80% to facilities. I was thinking maybe the illusion would be that if you were in small groups all your life and you're just studying the Bible, that that was true worship. Is that really true? Maybe the illusion is that if you go to church every Sunday, then you're doing the right thing and you're doing worship by sitting here listening to the sermon. Is that true worship? I think Satan's probably done a pretty good job in paralyzing the church to believe that they're worshiping him, but they're really not. One of the best passages in the scripture that I find find that really helps us to understand what true worship is, is Isaiah 58. If you have your Bibles, check it out. Isaiah 58. This is what I consider the anthem of this generation. If you want to memorize any chapter in the Bible, this is probably the best one for me to memorize. Isaiah 58, look at verse one. Shout with a voice of a trumpet blast. Tell my people Israel of their sins, yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to hear my laws. You would almost think that this was a righteous nation that would never abandon its God. They love to make a show of coming, in, coming to me and asking me to take action on their behalf. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We've done much penance and you don't even notice it. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because you're living for yourselves even while you're fasting. You keep right on oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like a blade of grass in the wind. 
You dress in sackcloth and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? How many of you ever fasted before? A lot of you have, okay? How many of you fasted more than seven days? Okay, a couple of you. How many of you have tried a 40-day fast? Okay, one or two. I, I've done a 40-day, and I tell you, I never really fasted before because I love food. <laughs> I mean, I really love food. I'm, I'm talking like normal love. This is like almost idolatrous type of love. And so when my friends said, hey, let's fast and let's try 40 days, I said, man, I don't know if I can do that. And they go, well, it's going to be a liquid fast where you can, you know, mix things up, you know, you get this fruit and put protein in it even, but we'll do a liquid fast. I'll tell you what, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I lost like 30 pounds. And uh, while I, I, I was speaking, I remember whispering to the congregation because I didn't have any energy to even speak. And then when I started looking at people, you know, I started seeing food. <laughs> it was like you talk to me and I see like this In-N-Out hamburger just kind of. <laughs> so let me just be honest. Fasting is hard. It's not easy. It's tough. It's probably one of the most preeminent disciplines within the spiritual life that people say you need to pursue to capture who God is. God says, even if you fast, maybe that's not true worship. He's taking it to the uttermost. He says, some of you are praying, but I don't call that true worship either. What's the problem with the worship that you see here? There's basically three that you, you note in this passage. You see verse three, he first mentions this idea of you're doing this for yourselves. So I will tell you what's why, why it's this way? It's because you are living for yourselves even while you are, are fasting. You see, a lot of times when we come to church and you walk out of here, if you don't feel like you got something, sometimes you feel like, man, that wasn't really good, a good Sunday. It was all because you were thinking of a cons like a consumer. It's what you receive. Well, maybe it's supposed to be the opposite. Hmm. You see, are you doing it for yourselves? I look at what's happening across America. In America, we love our worship. We love to sing. And we'll pay $20, $30, $40 to go listen to a Christian band. And then we all get emotional and we cry. Thousands of people in a stadium. And I wondered, did that city change after that worship service? Or was that just because people wanted to be moved? So we have a thing called passion in America, passion conferences and passion things, and I love passion, but then I say, is that all it is supposed to be, that we sing and we listen to each other sing in this room? Hmm. Maybe we're fasting for ourselves. Maybe the issue in, in God's economy is not so much our passion as it is our obedience. You know, I think of a mom uh, who gets up at 2 a.m. in the morning, her child's crying, diaper needs to be changed. Is she passionate about changing that diaper? I don't think so. It's just because out of pure love, you just do what's right. Have you ever thought following Jesus is that way? Let's just do what's right. You're not going to feel it sometimes. If it's always about your feeling, you're going to kind of want to not do it. You're doing it for yourselves. He said that's a problem with some of our worship. The other thing he says is that you're oppressing your workers. 
And that's how we treat people like that we work with. How do you treat your boss even from the go the vertical way? How do you talk about him behind, your, you know, behind his back? How do you talk about your fellow employees? How are you dealing with them? Are you lifting them up, showing them favor? Are you oppressing them? How you are at work will often indicate how you are with God. I can see your temperament and how you engage people in the workplace. You know where the other places, and he mentions it here. He says, you call, you say, yourself, say to yourself, you're fasting, you're praying, and you're worshiping, but what hap- what's happening? He says, you're fighting and quarreling. So he takes it to another layer. He says, not only are you worshiping God for yourselves and you're oppressing your workers, you're not really doing what you should do at the workplace, but you're fighting, quarreling in your homes and in your churches. When, I, when people ask me, why is this generation not falling, coming back to God in America? I said, well, it's a lot of times because we have a Christian culture where our parents know how to talk about Jesus at church, but when they get home, Man, they're using God's name in vain all the time, and they're cussing up a storm, and they're beating each other up with their words. He says, if you're doing this, there's something wrong with our worship. You know, I had an awakening. I remember uh, I was dealing with uh, seven years in, 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 in ministry, and I was just running fast. I was this big church on the East Coast, and I would literally run from room to room checking up on everything because I was like an associate pastor. And I, as, uh, as I went home one night, I, I, you know, when I hit the sack, I go out like that. Are you like that where, you know, I go into a comatose state like that. My wife is very different. She, she puts her head on the pillow and, and you can see, if you could see her eyes, they kind of go back and forth. Because she starts to think through the day, you know, what happened with the children, what's going on. And it takes her a while to sleep. So I'm about to go into deep REM, you know, rapid eye movement sleep, when my wife says, Dave, I said, what? You really don't know me. (laughs) And I go, oh, no. (laughs) This is going to be a long talk. I said, "Uh, so what do you mean I don't know you? And she goes, uh you really don't listen to me. I listen for the next four hours. <laughs> and my wife's not a talker. She's an introvert. Her words are weighted. I discovered something. I wasn't listening to my wife. You know, guys, what I'm talking about, right? We can repeat the last sentence maybe they said. We have short-term memory, so it looks like we listened but we really didn't listen. Because listening involves actually an engagement of your soul to their soul. It's being able to look into a person's eyes and looking beyond their words. Because so much of communication, if you study speech communication, about 80 to 90% of communications actually body language, tone, things that don't have to do with just words. So you see, it's more than listening to the words, it's trying to catch the vibe understand their soul. And don't you know every woman's dream is that their husband would understand them and would know them? That's her dream. And the, 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 the hard thing about this was as I meditated, it, it shocked me because I saw in my wife's eyes like she was afraid and, and almost she turned kind of cold. I had never seen that in my princess. 
And I'm looking at her and thinking about this woman I loved, and she's feeling this way. As I went to devotions, God said, hey, Dave, if you can do that with your wife, how about me? She's someone you can see. I'm someone you can't see. It's the same with me, Dave. You know, a good test of whether you can listen to God if you're worshiping him is, are you listening to your wife? Do the people around you who are closest, if you're not married, your best friends, your parents, if you ask them, am I a really good listener, what would they say? That's a true test of your spirituality. It's your relationships. It's not your talk. You see, we have an illusion of how we view spirituality. It kind of reminds me of fast food, you know. I love fast food. Okay, I, I, I got to admit that too. Not only do I love all foods, but there's some fast foods I really enjoy. You know, I, I do enjoy good hamburgers. And when I was younger, you know, I like In-N-Out burgers now. But when I was younger, Big Macs were the thing. So let me show you a Big Mac. Check it out. <laughs> oh, that's kind of like, well, not a Big Mac. It's a Whopper, I mean. A Whopper. It's, it's better than a Big Mac. Okay. <laughs> Now, when you look at that, that is so beautiful, right? I mean, you almost lust after that thing. You want that, that whopper. But is that really what you get? What do you really get? Let's show it. You go, uh, Dave, you know, uh, I like, um, I don't like, Whoppers, right? I, I'd rather go for maybe the fish sandwich. Okay, I like fish. That's what you would get, you think, but what do you normally get when you go through the drive-thru? <laughs> you go, okay, I want a little bit healthier thing, not fried. I'll go for the chicken, okay? The chicken sandwich. Man, that looks good, the Wendy's chicken sandwich there. But what did you get? I want you to see this, because this is what we do with God, all right? We bring our whoppers, we bring our best stuff to the Lord, and boy, isn't it good? It's beautiful, and we have this imagination that's beautiful. And we say, God, we're worshiping you, we're going to church every Sunday, and God, I even fasted for a day, and hey, I went to Easter service, I brought a person, and then I've gone to small group for about 70% of the time this year. Is that how you really measure your spirituality? God says, no, because all those works, even in the many times if they're good, they often have these underlining tones where they're not really good motives even. So our worship, if really, really solid, it probably looks like the second pictures of each of those sandwiches. But if you really want to know what the true thing God wants, the true beautiful worship that he desires from you, you know what, what it is? It's right here in the scriptures. I didn't see this till like a couple years ago. I, mean, I went to seminary, I went to church all my life, and then finally, I saw this in Isaiah 58, and I said, what the heck? Why didn't I see this earlier? Look at what it says here in Isaiah 58, and check out, say, verse 6. It says, no, the kind of fasting I want calls you to free those who are wrongly imprisoned and to stop oppressing those who work for you. Treat them fairly and give them what they earn. I want you to share your food with hung the hungry and to welcome the poor wanderers into your what? When's the last time you let a poor wanderer into your home? Someone you didn't know. 
When the Bible talks about hospitality, it's not talking about letting people you know into your house. It's people you don't know. It says, give clothes to those who need them. And I love this line. And do not hide from relatives who need your help. (laughs) If you do these things, your salvation will come like the dawn. Yes, your healing will come quickly. Your godliness will lead you forward. And the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I'm here. He will quickly reply. If you read the rest of the chapter, he talks about these promises, these concomitant results that happen as a result of this type of worship. I love this. When the Bible talks about the glory of the Lord, like following us from behind, the word glory is kind of an abstract concept in theology. What in the heck is glory? Well, if you took it in its most intrinsic form and you unpacked it and dissected the word glory, you could define it as beauty. The beauty of the Lord unfolds as we do these things. Because you know there's a beauty to God, right? You've seen beautiful things. I'm, I love design. I love the arts. When I hear a song that's sung right and you can tell they, there's excellence in it, it takes me to another place. I can look at a painting, like a Rembrandt painting. I can meditate on it for hours. And I can look at that beautiful thing and I feel impacted. It's like you touched God for a moment. The work is so awesome. You see, there's certain things that as we do do the activities God calls us to, we unleash his beauty to the earth in your homes. So what are those things that we're supposed to do? Well, the first thing I want you to see in the verses that we just read, verses 6 and following, there's these infinitive phrases. What's an infinitive phrase? Well, they usually start with a preposition to. Did you notice that? The short word to? He says in verse, uh, verse 6, let's see here. Now, the kind of fast I want calls you to free those who are wrongly in prison and to stop oppressing those who work for you. Treat them fairly and give them what they earn. I want you to share your food with the hungry and to welcome poor wanderers into your homes. Now, it's interesting, you know, when you say the Hebrew, what happens is uh, the, the writers will use these, what they call syntactical tools. And what syntax means is the relationship of the words and phrases together. So they'll set up things to emphasize a point that's not apparent when you first read the, read the text or their, their writings. And so what's not apparent when you read these twos, these series of to do this, to welcome, to help, When you read that, you just read it. But the truth is, they were using these infinitive clauses and phrases to emphasize action. Whenever they would do do it this way in the Hebrew text, they were saying, you're called not just to sit there, you're called to do something. So you see, when you think of worship, think of worship not as a passive thing, but as actually an active engagement. In what areas? Well, there's three areas I'd like to submit to you today in closing. One is justice. He says, stop oppressing those workers. He says, treat people fairly. Be just. Now, when you think of justice, oftentimes we think of compassion. We get the two mixed up. And compassion and justice, what's the difference? Well, let's say you're going, um, you're you're seeing a baby kind of cruise down the river, and uh, it looks like it needs help. Well, you have compassion, of course. You're going to dive in and rescue that baby. You're compassionate. You know what justice is? Justice is asking the questions, hey, who threw that baby in the water? 
And why did they throw the baby in the water? Were there some issues within their family network or within their village or their city that caused that much despair? You see, it deals with the systemic issues of society. It's not just kind of dealing with an emergency relief situation, but it's thinking long term. I work with World Vision, I'm on the board of this, this amazing group, and I found out that when they go in to transform a community like Haiti, it's not a one-year plan, it's a 10 to 15-year plan. They're dealing with all aspects of a society, health, education, religion, they're dealing with uh, economic sustainability. There are many factors to make a healthy society. So you see, when you talk that way though, it gets dirty, doesn't it? It's not fun to talk about that stuff because we like to just go help right away, but to stay with the person a while and work it through, that takes it to another level. Now, I, uh, I'll admit to you guys, I wasn't sure whether I was going to share this, but I guess I will. Uh, first seven years of our marriage, they were hard. Okay, really hard. And when I think about how tough it was. I remember times, my wife never doubted whether she should stay with me, but I doubted whether I should stay with her. And here I was a pastor. I was willing at some points to give up my calling to serve God. That's how intense it got. And I remember I would be embarrassed if you saw how I responded to my wife or talked to her. I was 22 when I got married to her, and I was a child. I treated her very poorly in terms of my language. And I would demean her with my words. You know what I'm thankful for? Is my wife stuck with me. We've been married now for 25 years. I tell you what, I look at her and I see beauty every day. I tell people, you know, you gotta stick it through sometimes. You feel like throwing in the towel? It gets really dirty and ugly, but if you'll make it through that, your relationship can get really strong. Because most people quit when it gets really dark. But if you can hang in there a little longer, persevere, you get on the other side, it becomes beautiful. I can tell you what used to take so much energy from me, I now gain energy from. It's now become like this big oak tree with this shade, and I can sit underneath it. And I can find rest and solace there. Good relationships do that, but you have to kind of work through it. You see, justice has to deal with deep relationships. It's not just looking at those other people. It's letting them into your house, dealing with their junk, the ugliness of their ups and downs. That's normal life. There's another piece to this I think is important. When you think about sacrificing this way, the way he talks about in the verses 6 and following, it has to deal with radical sacrifice. That's the second idea of, of the worship. It's radical sacrifice. To allow someone to come into your house is letting them into the inner community and communion of your life. You don't let anybody into your house. But this is your... Your, your sacrifice to God is saying, God, for my worship, I don't want to just do what's ordinary. I got to do what's extraordinary. I got to take people into another layer of community for there to be real interaction and beauty. Because think about this, and I, I didn't get this again until recently. 
The church will tell you, every church you go to in America almost, they'll tell you they build their church on two commandments. What are they? Love God and love your neighbor. Now here's the big question. How have people defined neighbor? They defined it as usually people like us. Okay, so these, these big churches all across America, the mega church growth movement was based upon developing people like you. And that's how you can grow big numbers. I remember going to conferences where they talked this way. They would put you into a demographic. And they say, who's the main type of person in, in the community that you need to reach? And typically they had this white person, the, like a geeky type of person in their 30s with two kids. And you're supposed to reach this person in the suburbs. I started reading the Bible a little more deeply, and I read that same question when Jesus was asked who my neighbor is. You know what he did? He was very Asian in his flavoring. <laughs> he didn't give a direct answer. You know, that's, that's a sage, sage right there. See, a lot of times a sage is more Socratic. They ask questions back. They don't give you an answer because the best learning will often happen through personal discovery. Jesus being the ultimate sage, when asked who's my neighbor, he just told a story. He told a story of a good Samaritan, a half Jew, half Gentile, loving a Jew. Do you realize how much Jews and Gentiles hated each other back then? And especially Samaritans? Because Samaritans were considered half-breeds. In fact, if you read uh, historians, they say that if a Jew uh, married a Samaritan, the parents thought it was worse than going to hell. What did Jesus mean when he told that story, who the neighbor is? You know who your neighbor is? It's actually the exact opposite of what we've been taught. It's someone not like you. Whoa. In fact, it may be somebody you even hate and can't stand to be around. Because church, think about this. What's the big deal if you just love someone like you? I mean, is the world gonna go, whoa, did you see that person? They love a person just like them. <laughs> they love the same songs, they love the same food, they look alike. What's the big deal? You see, God knew the genius of his gospel was when we can love those who are not like us, those who we would naturally even hate. And if we can love that way, the world's gonna pause and they say, you know what, that's supernatural. That's why a person like Nelson Mandela, who's been over 30 years in prison on Robbins Island in a small cell, that's why he can be uplifted to society because he loved the people who put him in prison. And he launched a movement of reconciliation in South Africa. You see, you can win Nobel Peace Prizes if you love that way. Whoa. So you see, it's about radical sacrifice. It's loving people not like you, people you'd even hate. It has this true idea not only of sacrifice, but of course this idea of justice. But the last thing, and I alluded to it in the second point, was that if you really love someone not like you and someone you'd even hate, there's another piece of worship that we have to move towards. You know what it is? It's forgiveness. Because you can't love this way unless you've forgiven people. 
There's no way. Because, you know, people are going to do you wrong, right? There are going to be Samaritans in your life. You go, you know what? They just did me wrong. I don't need them in my life. Forget them. But you know what? If you can love them, you can release them from judgment. That's what forgive means. Release them from judgment. You treat them as if they've never sinned. You demonstrate grace. What happens? The beauty of God starts to be unleashed. Who's in your life that you haven't forgiven? Is it a mom or a dad? Is it a husband, a wife? My guess is there's a lot of us who have unforgiveness in our heart. If you have unforgiveness, you know what happens? You become a prisoner of that person. They live in you rent-free, as one man says. I want to show you pictures of my family growing up, okay? My best friend was my mama, all right? And I'll show you a picture of my mom. Let's show some slides of that. That's, that's bath time. When I was little, I think that was in Japan. That's my first birthday. Uh, in the Korean culture, first birthday is a big one because, you know, and in the old days, uh, you know, if you made it to your first birthday, it was a big celebration because a lot of the babies would die. So culturally, they celebrate that first birthday. It's a big one. So they have all the... See, that's where I, I had my love of food, you can tell, right? <laughs> they messed me up from an early age. <clears throat> all right, let's check the next one. That's my mom holding me. That's one of my favorites. And this is kind of my last one there when I was a teenager. <laughs> and you notice, uh, you guys remember that, the 70s, the polyester there? That was like every, uh, every one of us was wearing like 100% polyester. <laughs> you know what's interesting about that fo- photo is my, if you look closely, my mom would always buy us clothes that were new. We get clothes during Christmas, uh, Easter, because we had to wear Easter clothes, and then uh, school, beginning of school. Those are like the main times we get new clothes. But I, when I started looking at pictures of my mom, going back through the album, I realized that she would often wear clothes that were not new. And what I realized she was doing was she was buying clothes for us, but not buying clothes for herself. You know, I, can, I love my mom. My mom uh, died on October 6, 1981. She was killed in a hit-and-run accident by a drunk driver. And what led up to that was very interesting. It was my sophomore year in, in high school when, uh, in our middle-class neighborhood, I walked outside and I saw my mom in the Chevy Blazer that she had bought my father. She locked herself up in the car. And my mom, who's very happy and the life of a party, she walks into a room and it just lights up. She has charisma galore. She was in the car and she looked messed up. She took a knife and then she started ripping the seats apart. My dad came and he came with a lawyer. I had never seen this before. My family was known as like the Waltons of, you know, the, the Brady Bunch in the neighborhood. And all of a sudden I saw my dad come with his lawyer and I said, what the heck is going on? And, and then finally the police came. Three police cars were stationed outside our house. All our neighbors were peering out the windows, saying, what's happening at the Gibbons' house? Finally, my pastor came, and when he came, my, my mom, she just broke down even more, and she lost her will. She opened the door and fell into my pastor's arms. 
and just started sobbing. I, I went up to her, I said, Mom, what happened? She said, Dave, uh, your dad had an affair. I said, no, Mom, dad wouldn't, dad wouldn't do that. And she walked in, I saw my dad. I could tell he was different. He didn't look at her the same way. I said, Dad, if you ever lay a hand on my mom, I promise I will kill you. And my dad's pretty big. He's six foot tall. You know, he's, he's, he, was a, he lifted weights, knows karate. But I didn't care. I said, if you ever get close to my mom, I will kill you. I went through the next few years not talking to my father. I just wouldn't talk to him. And he said, why aren't you talking to me? I said, you should know. He goes, it's not true. I told you it's not true, Dave. Well, finally, I believed him again. I started going, washing his car one day. He asked me to wash his Chevy. As I was washing the, the, the car, I, I lifted up the mat to clean it, and there was a card, and it wasn't from my mom. It, was, uh, it, was, it wasn't from my mom. It was from my, another woman. And I remember just kind of putting that card underneath the, the mat, and I finished washing his car, and then I went into my room as a 16-year-old, and this big football player guy, I jumped on my bed, and I just started sobbing like a baby. I said, how can my dad lie to me? How could he lie to me, his own son? So that just kind of embedded more deeply my hatred for my father. Well, at some point, I gave my life to the Lord uh, real soon after that. And I still didn't talk to my dad very much. I went to my sophomore year in college, and I was walking across the field, football field. And I still remember vividly, as if God spoke to me, like he was walking right next to me. He said, David, you need to love your dad. I said, I have no feelings for him, though, and I'd be a hypocrite. He said, David, love's not about feelings. It's about a choice. It's about obedience. Because do you think my son felt like going to the cross? No, he said, let this cup pass from me. I said, okay, Lord. I called my daddy up. He was shocked to hear my voice. He said, Dave, what do you want? I said, uh, I need to see you, Dad. And I'd like to talk to your new wife, too. I fly home to Arizona from South Carolina. I meet with him in his room. I'm sure he thinks I'm going to let go of a tirade of of verbal abuse, but I just looked at my dad and said, Dad, I haven't been a very good son. I'm sorry. I treated you unfairly. Would you please forgive me? And my dad just started crying. He said, Dave, would you please forgive me too? That was over 20 years ago. Since that time, I'd like to tell you that right away I got feelings from my dad. I didn't. It was until three to five years in but then I started seeing my dad like he's a friend. A, a, a worker, a counselor told me, hey, see your dad, not like dad, but see him as Gary. And that suddenly just kind of changed for me. I saw him as a person. Then I saw how my dad didn't have a father when he was young. His dad died when he was like two years of age. And my dad had done a pretty good job with us kids. As we grew in our relationship, uh, my dad, he died of leukemia two years ago. I was in the, the, the hospital room, uh, me and uh, his wife, and then she stepped out. He looked over at me and said, Dave, come here. 
And my dad had just started reading the Bible, by the way. <laughs> this is so cool. He started reading the Bible. He asked me to buy it for him. And I asked him, what, what, did, you, what did you get from it, Dad? He said, the Lord told me that I'd just been away too long. And then he looked at me and said, Dave, um, hold out your arm. I held out my arm. He grabbed it. He lifted himself up, even though his body was ridden with leukemia. He's still strong. He lifted himself up so he could turn and look at me. I was sitting to his right. I said, there you go, Dad. And he just stared at me. And I sat in the chair. And I looked at my dad. He didn't have to say a word. As he breathed his last breath, we could feel the love. You see, that type of forgiveness, that type of interaction is only of God. There's a beauty unleashed when you go there. What's true worship? Uh, true worship's not just sitting in church, going to a small group, singing a song. It's action. With the dirty stuff, with your wives, with your kids, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. Are you letting people into your home? Man, life can be beautifully different if you do. Father, please work in us now. What do you have for us? How do you want us to change? What are some actions we need to pursue? No one looking around, every head bowed, every eye closed for a moment. I have a feeling that there's some here uh, who need some healing. You maybe need healing from a, a parent or from something that's been done to you by a husband or a lover. Some of you need healing because you need to forgive because you're still a prisoner. I believe there's some here too where you've, you've kind of been captured by the motions of worship. But you know when you really take a deep dive into your life, you're not really a good listener of the Holy Spirit. And you need to re-engage in a more active way. I believe there's some here who need to be proponents of justice, where it's just not about showing emergency relief, but it's, it's about going deeper than that, giving your life to serve the different nations around the world, the poor around us, where it's just not something you do as a volunteer, but you do it as a full-time endeavor. How is God speaking to you? Would you let the Holy Spirit touch you right now?